All right, Salt City, I'm, I'm Jordan Adams. I'm the college pastor here. If I don't know you, come say hi after the service. I'd love to meet you. Um, but let's, let's dig right in. So flip open to 1 Peter uh, 1. We'll start in verse 13. <clears throat> I'd love it if you guys would kind of follow along with me. Um, here's what we're going to find today. There's three primary commands in this text, three imperatives. The first one is to have hope. The second is to be holy. And the third is to fear God. But within those commands, there's one that is absolutely primary, and it's that, that command to be holy. And the other two are kind of the ways that we go about holiness. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about what it means to be holy. All right, and so let's start reading here, but I'm actually going to get one word in. Um, so actually, that text that's on there, can we take that down for a second? Is that cool? Thanks, Corey. Uh, so starting in verse 113, it begins with the, the word therefore. And that's as far as we're going to get in before I need to stop. Because whenever you see the word therefore, particularly when it opens up a paragraph, you got to ask yourself the question, what is the therefore therefore? See what I did there? There was like two of you that were like, wow. Like the rest of you gave me eye rolls. But you know what? That's all I was looking for. I just hope to impress a couple of you. But actually, that's been super helpful for me. When you see the therefore, you got to pay attention and say, what's the purpose of this? And the answer is, is that our entire section this morning is connected to the previous section in 1 Peter, the one that Drake talked about last week. Or in other words, our section today is a result of, it's the, the purpose of what Drake talked about last week. And so we got to go back. And, and I want to read you just a section from that. So that's kind of what we had up on the screens. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Let me read you a little bit of this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Okay, can we think about what that text just said? What has God done for you? He's caused you to be born again. Not only does he give you a fresh start, but he gives you an entirely new life. And it's not just new life in general, it's new life in him so that you can experience life with God forever. Okay, you've been born again. Not only that, but you've been born again into a living hope. So not just this sort of vague idea that maybe there's a better life out there somewhere, but a, a concrete rock solid hope. The reason why it's called living hope is because it's referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That Jesus is alive and now you are alive just like him. And not only that, but you're imperishable, you're undefiled, you're unfading. There's an inheritance kept. To, oh, hey, I can see you guys now. Welcome. Let's, let's acknowledge that. It's good to see your faces. Okay, so... That's crazy. That's all that I'm saying is that God has done a ridiculous thing in his salvation of you. So here's my question for you is why? Why would God go to all of the work to do all of that for you? And that's where we get to that connection with our text this morning. I think the primary answer to the question of why would God save us like that is answered in our text in verses 15 and 16, where he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, 
Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The primary purpose for which God saved you is so that you would be holy. Holy means to be, to be set apart, to be of like other stuff. I maybe should have thought a better way to say that, right? But there's like normal stuff over here and then there's holy stuff over here. It's, it's categorically separate and different. That's what it means to be holy. And, and let me read this again, just in case you miss this. You shall be holy as I am holy. You should be holy like God is holy. And in other words, the way to be holy is to become like God. Now, how many of you are feeling just super confident right now? Like, anybody in the room want to kind of raise your hand and put your stamp on that? Like, yeah, got that covered. I'm holy just like, okay, this is Michael Jordan saying, play basketball like I play basketball. And, and we've got we've to feel the, the tension of this, and I think this is the primary tension of the Christian life. It's easy to get distracted and kind of theological debates and make those the tension in your life. I think this is the primary tension of the Christian life, is the dissonance between who you are now and who you should be. Who you are now and who you want to be, and you feel like you can be and should be in Christ, but you're not. This is the tension that you feel every time that you sin, right? If you know Jesus, you know what it's like when you sin, that you feel like your soul is being ripped apart. It's like, that's not what I want. It's not what I was meant for. It's not what I'm supposed to live for. I feel the shame of it, but I still go back to it over and over again. I feel this as a pastor because here's the reality is I preach stuff that I'm actually incapable of living. I'm not telling you that I don't care about, like I'm trying like, I want to back up what I preach, but I actually can't. I, I, I don't live up to the standards that I feel like the word calls me to and that I need to preach publicly. And so I constantly feel this tension between who I should be as your pastor and who I actually am if you got to see my life. And so the question is, is how do we resolve that tension? Well, one of the ways that we resolve it is that we fight tooth and nail to be holy is that we become a people who takes holiness seriously and sees it as the primary purpose to which you have been called as a Christian, not as just kind of the secondary pursuit that you pursue if you have time. And so this text is going to give us some ways to fight for holiness. It's those two that I mentioned. The first one is to have hope, and then the second one is to fear God. But let's start with hope. And I've got like just a simple little chart that I wanted to show you to think through this concept that I think this text is talking about. So there's the tension, right? This tension between what we are now and, and what we will be someday, who we will be someday in Christ. And so here's what hope is, is it's, it's the ability to see who you are now, but to look ahead in the future and say, the redemption of Jesus Christ is coming where he'll make me new. He'll make me into everything that I should be. And I'm going to believe him that even when I'm not that, that I will be that someday. And as you set your eyes, as you set your hope on that reality, it actually moves you closer to that reality. So hope is not only a bridge in the gap of time between who you are now and who you will be, but it actually moves you closer into becoming that sort of person. And typically we don't think of hope as connected to holiness, right? I said we're talking about holiness this morning, but I think sometimes we have pretty weird ideas about holiness. I think we think of holiness as being a little crabby, 
Like, when I think holiness, I have this idea of this very, this one specific church lady growing up that had this tight perm, wore too much perfume, and she sat in church, and I feel like she could see my soul, right? And she had this scowl that could make grown men cry, and, and I felt like she just knew everything that I had done wrong that week, and she was shaming me for it secretly. I didn't really even know her, but she knew. I think that's kind of the idea that we have about holiness, is this sort of uptight, rigid, rule-following, shaming concept. But it's interesting that when Peter starts thinking holiness, the first thing that he thinks about is hope. That there's joy coming that we don't have full access to yet, but that we'll have one day. And he says, set your eyes on that hope and on that joy. Verse 13 Therefore, prepare your minds for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay, question, what is that? What's he saying there at the end? Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What is it that we are ignorant of? We're ignorant of eternity. We're ignorant of the the firm hope that we have in Christ, that eternity is real, and that this place is not our home. And that ignorance of eternity causes unholiness in us now, because when you get consumed with this life, when things don't go according to plan, you freak out and you try and control your own life, or you get anxious and you get insecure, and it actually rips away the foundation of your trust in God, because you're so consumed with setting up your little heaven now that you forget about the real one that's coming for you. But when you're able to remember what Peter says about us is that we're exiles in this place. What's an exile? It's a a group of people that's been removed from their permanent home. So we're not tourists just trying to have as much fun as possible. We're not immigrants trying to kind of conform to the culture and make this place our home. We're exiles waiting for the country with which we belong. We're waiting to come home. And when we realize that hope, that home is just around the corner, it actually can make you live a different, more trust-filled life now. So last weekend, uh, we were at a wedding that was almost four hours away. And driving four hours with a tired seventh-month-old is super fun. And then when that seven-month-old has a fever and is getting sick, now you're really riding a roller coaster, right? It's just a, it's just a good time for everyone. So Graham, like, did pretty well uh, throughout the trip. And then about 20 minutes out, dude just woke up and started to freak out right? And so we're trying to calm him down. And so what are we doing? We're saying, hey, buddy, we're, we're like almost home. We're almost there. And I don't know why I thought that would work because he doesn't understand English. <laughs> but you're trying to reassure him and you're saying, hey, we're almost there, right? And so we're, we're pointing to what's coming, right? Soon you'll be able to get out of that car seat and you'll be able to move around as much as you want. And he can't really move that much yet, but he can move more than he can in that car seat, right? And there will be all the milk that you want, and the moose will be there, and you love the moose. Like, like hope is around the corner. Home is also almost there. Why am I telling him this? Right? Okay, so if Graham could actually believe that and understand that, what would have happened is he would have stopped crying. Why? 
Because the reality that everything that he wanted and needed was almost there would actually filter back into his present situation and he would be able to patiently wait. Why? Because home was almost here. He would have an outlet for what he needed and what he wanted. And this is what I'm saying is that we tend to be like that. We're freaking out in the backseat because we forget that everything that we've ever wanted and everything we needed is just around the corner. And we freak out when it's not here yet. But if we could just realize that we're almost home, we'd be able to live with a patience and a trust and dependence right now. But here's the problem is that hope does not come very naturally for us. You actually have to choose to put on hope like that even when you don't feel it. That's why it connects the life of the mind to hope in verse 13. It says, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope isn't passive. It doesn't just naturally happen to you. It's something that you have to discipline your mind to do. You have to set your mind on this incredible, eternal reality that's coming your way so that you can live a life of peace and hope and trust in God now. That's why he commands it of us is so that we would set our minds on it. Now, this is not a silver bullet. There is no silver bullet in Christianity, but I do think that we have greatly missed this in the Christian community. We think about the Christian life and Christian growth as sort of showing up to church, reading our Bibles, doing the things that we need to do, but we forget about the life of our mind and choosing to be people who are full of hope. And I'm saying you need a game plan for how you will be a hopeful person in this life. You can't open up a business, have no marketing strategy and no business plan and expect it to do well. You can't show up in Christianity, have no game plan for how to be a hopeful person and expect for that hope and that peace to come into your life. You need to figure out how to set your minds on hope even when you don't feel it. And that so often is what Christian hope looks like is you choose to believe even when you don't want to. You choose to hope even when you feel like it's hopeless. And I wish that I didn't have the example that I have. A lot of you don't know this, but it's been a rough, a really rough week in the life of our church. Um, David and Ben Tempty were twin brothers, brothers of Jonathan Tempty, who is one of our worship leaders at Salt City, and friends of a lot of the people um, within our church. And this week they were in a, a car accident and both of them passed away. And this is actually a, a photo of them um, standing outside of the, the graduate. Um, the last time we had church at graduate, I think it was early June, they ended up on the welcome team. And so, so this is them. David's over there on your, on your left. Um, and then Danny and then Ben, the second twin there. And then they're with Jackson and Jonathan and Josh. Jackson and Josh are two of their best friends, and then Jonathan, their brother. This wasn't their home church, but they still are doing stuff like jumping on welcome team. A lot of you saw them as you walked in the doors because they were just that type of people. And uh, this past week, uh, the Langlands held a... Uh, like gathering to mourn, to pray, to grieve, to worship, to do whatever we needed to do. And I had the, I mean, I hate that I had to be there, but it was a privilege to be a part of that holy moment. 
And it was primarily a group of their friends, like late teens to, to early 20s, people just trying to figure out how to process this. And they ended up singing worship songs to Jesus because they knew it's what Ben and David would have wanted. And so I'm sitting there and I'm watching these people who have been best friends with them their whole life singing it as well with my soul through tears. And we were reading scripture verses in between songs and somebody read 1 Corinthians 15 that says that death has been swallowed up in victory. And I think that there was no one in the room that actually felt like that was true in the moment because it felt like death was real. It felt like death was winning. But they were trying to set their hope on what they knew was true, that this was not the end of the story. That death at the end of the day can't win. You know why? Because Ben and David knew Jesus and they trusted him and they had hope for eternity. And this is what hope looks like, is it's weeping at a piano, singing about how everything is well when it feels like your world is crumbling because you trust the reality of Jesus Christ more than you trust what you feel. That's what Christian hope is. And if you knew them, I just want to tell you, keep going. It's worth it. And if you had the perspective of Ben and Dave, you, want, you would want to keep going. You know why? Because they are standing in front of hope realized. Everything that they've ever dreamed has come true. They woke up from a nightmare into life. And they would say, it's worth it. And I didn't know them that well, but I got to sit and hear stories about the life they lived. And they didn't live perfectly, but they did live well. <laughs> I heard stories about Ben, like on spring, I think it was Ben that was on spring break, that like was sneaking around in the middle of the night, cleaning stuff up and like setting stuff up for breakfast the next morning. Like most people sneak around in the kitchen to steal food. Ben was getting everything set up. Like these guys lived life well. And I think this is what they would say to you as they stand seeing Jesus, is that everything was worth it, that the sacrifices in their life, it was worth it, the temptations that they said no to, it was worth it, that the time commitment that they gave up to follow Jesus, it was worth it, that working through the hard times in their lives, it was worth it because now they see God and they stand with him forever. And so we put on hope and we keep going and I can guarantee you that there's no doubt in their minds right now, and I want there to be no doubt in ours, that hope is real. But this is what I'm telling you, is there's nothing natural about putting on that hope, especially when you walk through something like this. And so you got to discipline yourself to believe, even when you don't feel it. So when you want to give up, you trust when God feels like he's mean, you believe that he's good and that he can empathize with you in, in your pain. When you want to sin, you think about eternity in heaven and you think about what the real good life is and then you compare it to this life that you're trying to live and you choose not to sin because you know that you have something better coming. When you don't know if holiness is worth fighting for, you put your mind on eternity and you realize that this life is a little speck in the grand scheme of eternity and it's worth giving up whatever for Jesus now because he will give you everything in return in eternity and most importantly, he will give you himself. So we need hope to get us through. We need hope to spur us on towards holiness. 
But there's also like a weightiness to eternity and to holiness that we also should realize and should experience. And so the second thing we need to fight for holiness is a healthy fear, a healthy, awe-filled respect of who God is. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is what he's saying, is that what you do now matters for eternity. That the way you live actually has consequences. Like Christianity means that you accept Jesus as your Savior, but also as your Lord. You, you give over control of your life to him because you trust him, which means that if Jesus is not your Lord, or another way to say that is if you are not growing in holiness at all, then you are not a Christian. It's part of the deal. It doesn't cause Christianity, but it is the result of Christianity. And I know that's a little bit upfront, but this is why I'm saying that is because I'm begging you to take stock of your life. This isn't a joke. Like, like this isn't a game. We're not just playing church. The, the, eternity is real. And, and when something like this happens, eternity becomes like palpable. It becomes real. You can taste it, right? But it's like that all the time. We only realize it in those moments, but every single day, that is the reality. And here's what's true, is that Ben and David had no idea that that day was the day that they were going to see Jesus. They were alive one minute, and they were with Jesus the next. That's how quickly it can happen. And because they had trusted him, they have nothing to fear. But this is what I'm saying is have you actually trusted him? You are not guaranteed another second in this life. I'm not saying that to be morbid. I'm just saying that because it's actually true. And it's really hard for us to believe that that's true because we feel invincible. But it's true. You don't know. You have no control over the rest of your life. Have you trusted Jesus? Are you secure in him for eternity? We all know in theory that death is coming, but we're, we're like people that are riding on a train. And the bridge is out up ahead. And Jesus jumps on that train and he's like, look, the bridge is out. It's about to run off of a cliff, but I'm offering you a way out. All you got to do is come out of this door with me. I can get you out safely. And this is what some of us are doing. It's like, ah, Jesus, I think I'm good, but do you have like a throw pillow? I think this room needs a little bit more color. Do you have some curtains? I want to get these shut so that I can take a nap. We're trying to make this life more comfortable. When Jesus is saying, you got to get out, I'm providing you a way, would you please come with me? Have you taken him up on that? Every single one of us in this room will stand before our creator and give an account, and the appropriate response to that is fear. But let me explain a little bit more about what that fear actually means. Let's look back at verse 17, the second half of it. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, 
Why? Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Okay, so hear me on this. If you don't know Jesus, that fear actually means literal fear. Like, you will stand before the judgment seat and you should take an account of that. And if for you that's like, that seems a little bit harsh. I don't know if I can believe in a loving God who is judging. With respect to your questions, and this is a safe place to ask those questions and to process those things in community, but I want you to consider something that whether or not you believe it's real has no effect on the reality of that truth. When a tornado is coming towards your house, it's not the time to stand around and think about why tornadoes exist or whether they're actually as harmful as people make them out to be. It's time to get out of the house. That's if you don't know Jesus. But if you know Christ, this fear looks a little bit different for you. The the purpose of the fear is, or the, the reason why you fear God is because you know that you were ransomed, right? That, that he, he paid a perfect sacrifice for your sins. And then he mentions perishable things such as silver or gold. But he says that stuff is nothing. The sacrifice of Christ is even more than that. So he, he lists some of the most valuable substances on earth. And he says, no, that's not even, that's not even valuable in comparison to the sacrifice that Christ paid for you. This unimaginably high price of Jesus's life, of incredible value and worth that he gave for you. And and this is what the fear of a Christian is. Is not afraid that God is going to kind of come down on you or hurt you like an abusive father, but fear that you would hurt the God that loves you. That, that you would scorn that kind of precious sacrifice. So, so imagine if we found a plant in the Amazon that we learned cured cancer, cured all forms of cancer immediately. And if you take just one ounce of this plant kind of diluted in some water, then any person with cancer would be healed. But the problem is, is that there's only eight total ounces in the entire world. And so what they choose to do is have a lottery. And so if you have cancer, you can enter your name in that lottery and they spin kind of that lottery wheel and a ball drops out. And if it's your number, you get that cure for cancer. And so imagine there's millions of people watching this worldwide, praying for themselves or for their family members. And then a person gets their number called and they walk up and they take that cure for cancer and they go, eh, I'm not feeling it and dump it out on the ground. Sin is dumping out the precious blood of Jesus Christ on the ground. Value the significance of his sacrifice and live differently. But we come back to that tension. The tension that I hope you feel, the tension that I feel saying that, is if you were to accuse me and say, Jordan, have you lived like that? Have you ever devalued the sacrifice of the blood of Christ? I would say, yes, every single day of my life, I don't value that the way that I should. 
that I'm not able to actually live the holy life that I want to. And so we need something more than just our efforts. And that's where verse 20 comes in, is he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What is your hope in? Is it in you? Is it in your ability to be holy? No, your faith and hope are in a God who loves you. And so this is the conversation of your heart, is God, I can't live up to this command. I know. God, I can't ever be as holy as I should be. And he looks back at you and he says, I know. God, I'm I'm not perfect. I'm not what I should have been. And he says, yeah, I know. That's why I did everything for you that you ever could have needed. That's why I was everything for you in your place. That's why I was holy in your place. Always something dirty contaminates something clean. You spill something on the kitchen counter, that stuff doesn't immediately just clean, get cleaned up. What does it do? It makes the kitchen counter dirty. But in this scenario, something clean made something dirty clean. You are dirty, but Jesus reached out and touched you, and in his cleanliness, it overwhelmed your dirtiness and made you clean. His purity made you pure. It went the other way around. And this is what happened, is that Jesus rose from the dead and then offered you his new resurrected life. So not only have you conquered the grave, that death can't hold you, that sin doesn't hang over your head anymore, that you have new life in him, but you have the same power that rose Jesus from the dead to live differently, which means that you can now be holy. Holy at an identity level. That when God sees you, he sees Christ and he doesn't hold an account of your sins and you don't have to be afraid of God because there's no judgment left for you if you are in Christ. At an identity level, you can be holy and at a practical level, you can be holy because the resurrected power of the king of the universe is in you to change you and he will follow through on his promises. Let me pray. God, I want to be different than I am, but I thank you that you don't hold it against me, that you offered a way out of my sin and a way into an eternity full of hope. And I pray that we would be a people who trust you even when life is hard, who trust you to redeem us from our sins, who trust you to be good for us even when we're not good. Help us to feel the weight of our sin against you, but also the weight and glory of grace that that sin has been removed from us and help us to be people who celebrate that truth. God, we're so thankful. We're thankful that we are not people without hope, We're thankful that there's something after this life, that this life is not the end of the story. Help us to be people who trust you with our souls and with our eternity. We love you, Jesus. Amen.